Hi, it's Pete Price. And with our podcast this week, we'd sort of do a playback. So many people have said they missed the show. So we had such fabulous guests. We're going to give them all to you. There's something for every one of you. So let's start off with David. David Green from the Red Fox. He is the general manager, but he also is a hot air balloonist. Fascinating. Mark Manley's talking about divorce in lockdown and e-scooters. You love them or hate them. Mm. Emma Dears is talking about Judy and Liza the Musical. She's coming to New Brighton on the 4th of June and we're excited about that. And then to finish off, wow, what a guest, Mark Palios. The owner of Tramir Rovers talking about the Super League and Tramir and how much they've done with their wonderful fans through lockdown. So there we are. It's a fabulous podcast with all my guests. So enjoy it. Sit back, enjoy Pete Price with such a varied group of people. Here's David Green, the general manager of the Red Fox and Hot Air Balloonist. Hello, David. Good evening. How are you, mate? Have you had a mental, busy day? Yeah, I'm uh, pretty tired tonight. The feet are a little bit sore. 28,000 <laughs> steps today. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm so glad. I was going to ask that question. What steps are your uh, your staff doing? Yeah, I think I think we've got the biggest, about 36,000 steps so far. Wow, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, a lo- it's a long way out to the marquee, but it's uh, it's fantastic. It's I couldn't have wished for a for a better restart. It's gone from zero to 10,000, but it's, it's just amazing to be back. It's great to have you back, and you've got a beautiful place. The Red Fox, ladies and gentlemen, is on the Wirral, um, and it's tremendous in Thornton. And it, it, it used to be Westwood Grange, which was a great disco and also a great restaurant is in its own right. But David and the uh, company have taken it to another level, which is great. What I've got to say to you, David, is, and I've got to congratulate the staff. First of all, the food is hot, and what is wonderful, it's not, a, it's not just round the corner. It's quite a walk from the kitchens, isn't it? So it's, the staff have done a good job. I honestly, I couldn't, I couldn't be prouder of the team. They've come back, um, I think, stronger than, than before. We've, we've, we've got the attitude. We've been shut for eight out of the last 12 months, so it's, it's been a tricky time for everybody in hospitality. Mm-hmm. So just to see everybody back out enjoying being with friends and family and all those missed celebrations that we've had is... Uh, Hopefully we're uh, we're at the end of the tunnel. We've got another couple of weeks to go before hopefully, fingers crossed, we can get back inside and get a bit of normality going. But this weather has been an absolute godsend to us, so uh, long may it continue. Yeah. David, I've got to be negative now, which irritates me, and I hate talking about it, but it isn't you, it's everyone. I believe it's disgraceful, the amount of no-shows you've had, and people booking tables, and the one time you don't need no-shows, it costs nothing, nothing to pick up a phone and say, I'm stuck, or I can't get there, and I know you and your staff would understand, but it isn't just you, it's every restaurant's having no-shows. Yeah, I think we've seen it across the media this week. And as you say, you know, negativity, I I, I hate it. And we we posted on um, social media in the week talking about it, just just to highlight it, not just for us, but for all of us in hospitality. You know, we're relying on this trade. We've got here, we're fortunate that we've got a big outside space. We've got a lot of covers, but um, we we are still averaging about 50 no-shows a day, which not not only impacts us financially, you know, we're fully booked for two weeks, so... It's just stopping other people being able to come. If you, you book online, there's a simple way to just click cancel on that booking. So I just urge everybody, if you have booked somewhere and you can't make it, and we absolutely understand that things change and you have to cancel tables, that's fine. But just please let, let the people know that you're going to cancel. I'm glad you said that. And that's not your restaurant, that's every restaurant. And I think it's a disgrace because they need all the money they can get and many, many people are going and can't get a table and then you let them down. I, I, I mean, moving yep. on to another thing like that, David, I've got a pet hate about the amount of people that don't turn up for doctors and specialists for appointments and I think they should be fine. But we won't go down that road, David, because <laughs> I want to talk about your hobby. There was a wonderful human being called Phil Easter who used to work on uh, Radio City. He was a legend, and I worked with him on The Breakfast Show, and one day I went in a hot urn balloon right down the Mersey. It stayed with me forever and ever, and when I found out uh, that your hobby and your passionate about hot air ballooning is, I said, I've got to have you on the show. It's a fascinating hobby, isn't it? 
It is. It's uh, it, it's one I've always been fascinated with flight, and I think from a young age, I, you know, lots of young young dreams are to become a pilot, and it, it, it kind of the path I went down never never ended up by that. But I'm from Llangollen in North Wales, where they used to host a, a balloon festival every year. And uh, back in 2006, the, the festival cancelled. And at that time, I had an event management company and we decided to, to step in and, and save the festival. And uh, I met a gentleman that worked for Lindstrand uh, Hot Air Balloons, so Pear Lindstrand at a uh, manufacturing company in Oswestry. And I met a gentleman, uh, Chris Sanger Davis, who uh, took me for a flight. And it was just one of the most surreal feelings of, of just being in flight that I just, I just fell in love with it. Um, and then, yeah, took, took the route of becoming a pilot, purchased the balloon, got my license back in 2009, uh, and still get actively flying. Now, you see, it was interesting you said that because I had no idea, uh, and um, Rod, the owner of this radio station, has got a, a pilot's license. I had no idea that you needed a pilot's license to fly a balloon. I don't know why I didn't think that, but I didn't. <laughs> well, there's, there's lots of aviation sports, you know, the paramotor and. Uh, paragliders and things that you don't you don't need a license for um but ballooning you need a, a yeah a civil aviation authority regulated license so it's a, it's a, a restricted license so i'm only res uh, able to fly hot air balloons but the, the exams are the same that you would take if you were taking a fixed wing mm -hmm. uh, pilot's license but yeah it's all in accordance with um the Civil Aviation Authority. Interesting, David. Is one of the biggest problems that you can't get up the air because of wind, etc., etc.? I say that because somebody bought me a hot, hot air balloon experience with Virgin, and I think we went back about six times. We eventually got up, but it was horrendous trying to get up there. Yeah, that takes me back to the days of organising the balloon festival. Um, it's such weather dependent, and you, you pin a date... You know, we used to do it the first weekend in September, and you, if the weather's not on your side, the, you know the balloons can't fly. So we are limited to take off maximum of, of ten knots on the ground, uh, and then it depends on directions and upper winds. The winds change every roughly every five hundred feet. So we're totally dependent on on the weather right now, and also, you know, what what weather's coming up. And we're restricted on times. So summer times we have to fly first thing in the morning or last thing at night. So it's normally an early start, six, seven o'clock in the morning, or evening flights because the thermals during the day allow us to uh, not fly. So we're just coming into that time now. So I, I went up um, last Saturday actually, and we, we left here at uh, quarter to six in the morning to fly from Fangoslin. So yeah, it's uh, it's a uh, anti-social hours, but amazing. If you if you go up at sunrise or sunset, the, the views can be spectacular. Which is the, when I went up, it was early morning to do the breakfast show, and it was the yeah. silence. Apart from the, the blowing of the heater, um, the silence is quite magical, isn't it? And if you pass cows, you see, the, the, with the shadow of the balloon basket, the, they, the, the cows go crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's something they're not used to seeing in the sky, I think, and uh, we have to be very, very mindful of that. It's called landowner relations, you know. All right. We, we don't know, when we take off, we don't know where we're going. So we, 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 we're trespassing every time we land. We land on somebody's uh, land and we, we hope that they are receptive of us uh, landing in their field. But we have to be seriously considerate towards crop and livestock to make sure that, you know, minimum disruption as possible. But, yeah, the, the silence, um, you, you can hear dogs barking and yeah. that's about it yeah. when you're up there. Yeah. It's the escape for me. That's why I do it. I understand that, there. yeah, especially from catering, absolutely. Now, you I say about landing, that's really interesting. So, have you ever got somebody there with a shotgun going, you're not landing here, lad? Yeah, one or two times, oh. Peter, yeah, one or two. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, yeah, we've, I've, yeah, I've had a couple. Um, basically, uh, the... There's people think that, you know, the commercial side of it. So people pay a lot of money to go in a balloon you know, with Virgin or, or many other operators out there. Um, but I do it purely for fun. I don't, yeah. I don't charge yeah, people. Yeah. Like, I'm not allowed to charge people. But I think they think sometimes that I'm making money and I, I need to give some money to them when I land on one of their fields. But oh, I've done, uh, I've been very fortunate to fly. Um, we go to Austria every, every January. We obviously didn't go this year. Uh, and fly out in the Alps. And the reception you get out there is much different. They all run out with schnapps 
and bring you back into the farmhouse and, <laughs> and call you a sky god when you land. They feel privileged. So it's, uh, we're trying to educate the, uh, the British farmers and landowners. And it's a two-way respect, yeah. isn't it? It's, it's, you know, it's flying the farmers, it's taking the locals for flights and just trying to build that relationship, really. Is it an expensive hobby? Uh, I, I guess it's relative, isn't it? Any, any aviation is, is not cheap. Um, the, the biggest one for us is insurance. So you're looking probably about seven, eight hundred pounds a year insurance. Which, so it depends on how many times you fly. Mm-hmm. Per flight, we fly on propane, so it, it's not massively expensive. You're probably on an average flight forty pounds for for your gas. Um, setup costs again, it goes if, if you're looking at buying a car, you can get a cheap car or you can get an expensive car. It's uh, secondhand kits you can pick up. Uh, five, six, seven thousand pounds, but then going up to a brand new special shape, you're hundred, hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Oh wow! Wow! So if you want, you know, if you wanted a, a shape or your face printed on the side of it, it uh, it, it becomes it become it can become an expensive hobby. But tell me, have you got an outrageous balloon, or have you just got an ordinary one? I have uh, at the moment. I've just got a, a, an ordinary one. I've had in in past i've uh, had ownership of a, a panasonic battery i've had sonic the hedgehog <laughs> i've had uh, yeah a number of shapes but the, the, the trouble with shapes is they're so heavy um to move around and you have to have so many crew and it just the one i've got now is, is big enough for me to fly with with four people uh but it's light enough to be able to sort of move around with a couple of us so now yeah. tell me what happens on the ground because uh, the, there's a code isn't there i have to follow you so if we're mates i follow you and it's a couple of times and i gotta go tell us how it works yeah so if, if anybody's looking to get involved i recommend you head to the uh, it's called the bbac so it's the british balloon and airship club uh that's the kind of uh, the organization that looks after pilots and non-pilots as we, we get lots of balloon spotters and lots of crew that wants to get involved um there's local balloon clubs so i'm a member of the northwest balloon and airship club and also Street balloon club so again you're welcome we meet once a month we talk balloons we go flying and people you tend to have a bit of an unwritten rule that if you help crew for us um so when we take off we we don't know where we're going so you have to follow with a with a vehicle either a van or a trailer on the back of the car and if you crew a couple of times we'll, we'll take you for a flight i've got a couple of guys now that are, are, i'm sort of training to fly so they do a couple of retrieves and then i take them for a flight and give them a bit of time on the burners and you have to have a minimum of 15 hours flying to get your license right. four of those with an instructor so yeah and there's plenty of ways of getting involved in it and it's, it's interesting uh, yeah it's a great great community now, what about landing? Because the one one of the times I went up and landed, we were dragged across a field. I've never, and there was, I won't mention who it was, but there was somebody underneath me. I didn't know they were underneath me. And they said, you will never tell anyone, will you, that you were dragged across a field with, and I, you were on top of me. I said, no, of course I won't. And we were really dragged. Does that happen a lot? Again, it, yes, it can. It depends on the weather conditions. If you think, you know, my balloon's 67 metres tall, so when you land, you've got a giant sail. But if it's windy, that sail's just going to propel you across the ground. Um, but different balloons have different venting systems, so you need to get the air out of them as quickly as possible. Um, we try and land as smoothly as we can and as, as close to the road as we can because trying to carry it, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's, called, it's called lighter than air, but my, my balloon basket and the balloon itself... Uh, is actually it's half a ton. Oh, so to to, to land somewhere and try and move it out of the field can be uh, can be pretty tricky. David, you showed me some photographs of the Alp, and I won't take much more of your time. But you showed me some photos which were magical. Can you explain f- flying over the Alps? Well, again, I was I was fortunate enough to get invited out with um, Chris Langer Davis, who's, who's become a very good friend of mine. Um, he taught me to fly. And he's been going to the Alps, a little village in um, Austria called Tilksmus, about an hour from Salzburg. And he took me out there for the first time, and I'm a a snowboarder. So I've been going to the mountains for years. And uh, we arrived in this small little village, and there was was probably about 20, 25 balloons, and they they take off. And I've done it for 12 years now, and every flight I do out there is is magical. We've done some seriously long-distance ones. We've done six, seven hours, 22,000 feet, oxygen on. The views... 
the, the weather conditions out there can change. You can see the weather sometimes moving in. And over here, you can pretty much land fairly quickly and, and be okay. But when you're above some big mountain ranges, you don't, you don't want to be uh, stuck up there. But wow. it, yeah, it's the most magical. Again, I've shown you some pictures, but they just, they just no, don't describe no, the feeling they of, couldn't. of actually yeah. being up there. Yeah. It's pretty cold. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. David, to finish off, how do people find out about the Red Fox? Because your company uh, have got quite a few restaurants, and the standard and the people that work there, you know when you walk into one of your restaurants, you know what you're getting every single time. It's brunningandprice.co.uk. That's our website, and there's a link there to our other pubs. So we've got um, up in Formby, we've got the Sparrowhawk, we've got a couple in Chester. Um, and we get lots of customers that move in between because... At the moment, we all have the same menu, just try and get supply chain right. But when we're open, hopefully yeah. not in the distant future, we all have different menus. And so, yes, the same feel, the same standard, but we all offer uh, something a little bit different. Mark Manley is a family lawyer solicitor. He's talking about e-scooters and divorce. Hi, Pete. How are you? I'm very well indeed. I've got to say, we had a night uh, somewhere. Uh, you were with your lovely lady. We were in company. It was just before lockdown, and it turned out there were some famous people in the audience. Uh, in the audience in the hotel, it turned out to be one of the nicest nights I've ever had, Mark, for many, many years. Because you were at the piano, everybody got up and sang. We were drinking champagne. We had beautiful food. Wasn't that a magical night? It was indeed a fantastic night. Really enjoyed it. As you say, we had some great company. And then we were very blessed, if you remember, there was a magnificent lady <laughs> who came and joined us who was one of Sam Smith's backing singers. And yeah. boy, what, what a voice she had. She was incredible. incredible. She was. And also, she was a big lady. Um, she was model she modelled big clothes. Um, so she was fascinating. But it was a night I never, ever, f ever forgot and never wanted to end. And I've got a couple of nice videos. But I didn't ask you on to that. I asked you on to talk about two subjects. One, divorce. And two, e-scooters. Let's start with yeah. divorce. I heard a little story that um, around the Wimslow area, some of the companies are not doing so well because of lockdown. And while the companies are not doing well, um, some of the husbands have decided to uh, get the um, company valued. It's not worth very much. We'll get divorced now, get it out of the way, and then uh, the wife doesn't get everything. What's going on with divorce and lockdowns? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, you would think, wouldn't you, that... Um You'd think that lockdown would perhaps have uh, caused some sort of spike in divorce cases. But here in the UK, uh, the, the rate of divorce has been going down steadily since, since about 1994. In, in fact, it, the, the, the dip started as long ago as the 1970s. Not necessarily because people are more happy, yeah. um, but... Um, Less people are getting married, of course, now than, than they used to. But um, around the world, it is the case that um, the, the pandemic appears to have had a, a negative effect on marriages. The, the Americans are reporting uh, a 34% increase in divorces in 2020, big increase in China. But here in the UK, whilst undoubtedly lockdown has imposed greater strain on relationships for a number of reasons. No, no real evidence of, of a divorce boom uh, emanating out of, uh, of lockdown happily. Wow. Mark, you're a very successful um, uh, company, uh, but unfortunately a lot of companies have gone by and by these days. What's going on and how have you coped and your pals coped as solicitors? Yeah, well, uh, look, I, I think, you know, you've got to feel sorry, haven't you, for... for all small businesses um, during this t this time, it's not just businesses, obviously an awful lot of individuals have lost their jobs and, and companies, small, big and small, uh, have suffered, so difficult. So far as the legal profession is concerned, Pete, I I've not seen a lot of evidence of of people uh, massively being affected by it. I suppose there's going to be some areas of the law where lawyers 
would have struggled. So you could imagine during 2020, there wouldn't have been a lot of people, for example, buying uh, or selling companies. It, it, you, could, you, you could imagine that the sales of of commercial properties or leases would have, would have dipped quite significantly. But the housing market um, during the periods when we came out of various lockdowns appeared to do very well. So I think conveyances have done okay. Um, just indicated a moment ago, don't think divorces have seen the boom that um, uh, perhaps people might have anticipated, though I know I know family lawyers are very busy. We, we've got family lawyers in my firm. Um, they've been very busy. Um, but, but by and large, um, touch wood and etc., We've been pretty lucky in my firm, uh, we, you know, managed to keep things going, haven't lost uh, people as a result of the lockdown, and uh, you just got to do what you can, obviously, in, in difficult times to, to keep it going. Yeah. Now, you're very um, savvy in what we're doing right now, and you always have been, and you've been involved with some big, big um, radio companies as the main solicitor's office. Um, courts have changed. We've now got a court just round the corner from here in the uh, Hilton Hotel. Um, how did you cope when you first started using Zoom in courtrooms? Yeah, um, it's certainly been... Um a wholly different experience um, to, to, to both be an advocate uh, having to deal with cases on the phone, and there's been quite a lot of that where, where we've had to even conduct trials over the phone, calling people to give evidence over the telephone, pretty difficult. And then court started to introduce, uh, as many other businesses have done, um, in hearings taking place by, as you say, Zoom, Microsoft Teams, uh, and the like, witnesses giving evidence over com computers, which of course have been forced upon us as so many other things. Um, things have, have had to be done remotely. Um, in honesty, um, whilst you sort of get. Um, it, the last yeah, sorry. 12, 12 months getting used to it. Yeah. I'll be I'll be very glad, and I'm sure many people will, when we just get back to face-to-face -to -face court hearings. Mm. It, it must be difficult. Difficult for people. And also, with the backlog, uh, Mark, isn't there a problem, because there's such a backlog, isn't there a problem with people remembering evidence? Yeah, there might be some of that. I mean, there's no question whatsoever about... What you just said about a backlog, um, it, it really is in virtually every type of uh, legal area, both criminal cases. My wife uh, is a volunteer. She works for the witness service in the Crown Court in in Chester. She, she's seeing the backlog in criminal cases. I deal with civil cases, big backlogs. Uh, and I suppose there's got to be some uh, point in what you say that, you know, there'll be there'll be people not, not remembering, et cetera, et cetera, and, and memories fading as a result of, of delays. But, uh, of course, those delays are nobody's mm -hmm. fault. Uh, Mark, you've got a passion for, well, you've got a lot of passion for different things, but one is for e-scooters. Now, on uh, in the um, social media, it's either love to hate, there's nothing between, and today has been crazy because I said I was going to be talking about it. People love or hate them. You love them, don't you? Yeah, um, look, I fully understand that people find them very irritating, particularly if they are ridden illegally on on pavements and the like, but uh, they're fantastic fun. Um, they're obviously environmentally friendly. And in a, certainly in a big city, it's a, it's a fabulous way of zipping around and seeing an awful lot of the city in a short space of time. When did you first discover them? I was over in uh, Germany uh, a couple of years ago um, for, for business reasons, and um, I was in Berlin. And, and I saw a couple of people going uh, going around the streets on these electric scooters, and I decided to um, chance my arm and have a go, and uh, absolutely loved it from the moment I got on one, and, and uh, since then I've 
abused them in different countries and in, in outside of Germany. Uh, I bought one um, and, and use it in Spain, in Gibraltar, etc. Um, I, I really enjoy them. The great providing you, you have respect for people and, and you're sensible about it. You don't go mad. I think they're great fun. A great way to get around. Now this, as you know, there's um, a, 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 a campaign in, in Liverpool where we we been using these e-scooters. I think we've got 400 here, um, but people just don't understand. They're not supposed to be on the pavement, are they? No, you, you, you know, people. I know. I was speaking to you about uh, these tonight. <laughs> Shows it's the lawyer in me. Did a bit of research. You're going to love this. Are you ready? Go on. Um, Section 72 <laughs> of the Highways Act, 1835, right. nearly 200 years ago, they brought a law in to say that powered transporters cannot be used on a public pavement. So we've got a law that's nearly... I, I can't imagine that 200 years ago they were thinking of e-scooters, but somebody <laughs> uh, clearly was concerned about something moving on the pavement. So, no, it's illegal for them to be driven uh, on a pavement. Uh, and indeed, at least in the UK, it's illegal for them to be um, to, to own one and drive it on, on a public road at the moment. The only way in which they are legal is following the um, the uh, trial period yeah. announced by the Department of Transport last summer for for 12 months in the UK. The UK lags behind uh, an awful lot of countries, in, particularly in, in, in Western Europe, on the use of these scooters. But no, they are, as you say, they're illegal on the pavement. You also made a very good point when we were talking privately about crash helmets and being sensible. Yeah, look, um, you know, I think a few things that are not known about these things. Firstly, um, if you drive one of these uh, e-scooters irresponsibly, you can be prosecuted for careless driving and dangerous driving in the way you can if you drive a, a car or a motorcycle uh, recklessly. Um, you, you can have a £300 fine if you're driving one uh, riding one illegally, you can have up to six points put on your driving license. Oh, wow. Got one. Yeah. Wow, um, I didn't so, know that. So I think a lot of people think that, you know, well, you can jump on these things and there's no real sanction. In fact, that's not true. And, uh, yeah, and whilst I do think they're great fun, um, it is important to have respect for other people and make sure you you, you, you treat them sensibly. And, you know, I, I know as a motorist, I've got to confess, Pete, although I like riding one, um, when I'm on one, when I'm a motorist and I'm having to navigate them on the road, yeah. I truly dislike them. Now, tell me, what, what's it like over in Spain and Gibraltar? Because they're a bit mad the way they drive over there anyway, so... They're no better on e-scooters, I can tell oh. you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll, I'm, I'm going to go away from this interview tonight knowing you can get points on your licence. I never even thought yeah. of that. No, you, de you definitely can. You see, one of the problems with these things is, unlike, you know, cars and motorbikes, you don't, of course, have to take a driving test to ride an e-scooter. You mm -hmm. do have to be over 16. You're supposed to have a provisional or, or, or full UK driving licence. You're not supposed to exceed 15.5 miles an hour. I don't know how you choose to monitor <laughs> that. Um, but uh, you, you see an awful lot of uh, youngsters on them who, who you, you do wonder from the age of them, how can they possibly have a driving licence, etc.? Um, so I, I suspect, in truth, you know, they need greater regulation. Um, and certainly I've noticed in, when I've used them in Germany, the police stop people quite a lot and ask for evidence of your driving licence. That's interesting. It's interesting what you said about the youngsters, because you do see somebody and you've got to look and question whether somebody's filled in all the forms and given them the scooter to use. Yeah, well, 
you, you, you do wonder sometimes. I was in, in Chester at the weekend and saw two young lads, but two, two of them on one e-scooter. Mm-hmm. Neither one of them, I would suspect, own, older than 13. Yeah. You know, as one of them being a bit cheeky and perhaps uh, borrowed his dad's driving license for the purpose of him putting the details. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's quite a cool thing for young for youngsters to do, but... Uh, they can be dangerous, you know. Um, you know, there have been tragedies. Um, there's one in 2019. A, a, a well-known YouTuber, um, Emily Hartridge, sadly died in Battersea when um, she had an un- underinflated tyre on a scooter and collided with, with a lorry and sadly um, uh, lost wow. her life. So... They're pretty dangerous. They need proper regulation, but they're great fun. That's amazing. Mark, to finish off, how do people get in touch with you? Because you have got a great reputation and, uh, you know, people do need solicitors. And and it's important. People, some people don't realise how important solicitors are, do they? Uh, listen, there's, there's, a, there's a place, isn't there? You know, if people need advice um, on legal matters, uh, then you know more than happy to to help people out and uh, we're, we're based in Chester and um, if anyone who needs advice then um have a look at have a look at the website uh, you know um, www.manleys.com Mark always a pleasure to talk to you and I loved the advice you've given me over the years when you worked somewhere else <laughs> That's very kind. Always good to see you. And listen, let's hope, uh, you, you know, we kick this off, Pete, by talking about a fantastic night we had around the piano. I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to yep. the days when we can get back to some of that. He's organising a party, so uh, fingers crossed it's going to happen very soon. <laughs> good, good. Good Ta-da, to speak man. to you. Ta-da. Emma Dears is telling us all about her new show, Judy and Liza, the musical, coming to New Brighton. Hi, Pete. You all right? Well, yes, I can't believe you're showing all your costumes, getting ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not much of a seamstress, to be All right. <laughs> How excited are you at taking Judy and Liza, the musical, back on the road? Oh, I'm really excited. A little, little bit nervous as well, I won't lie, you know, with everything that we've all been through for the past year mm-hmm. um but yeah i can't wait to just get on the stage you know and and feel the warmth of the lights and have even though it will be a socially distanced audience have have live theater again you know it just it feels like the final step to normality really you know it's interesting emma and you're coming to new brighton which is a fabulous theater when they rebuilt right. it they really did a great job didn't they because yeah. there's no blank spots anywhere which will help with the social distancing yeah well i mean we actually performed it it's in its 10th year it's in its 10th anniversary judy and liza and we performed it there on our first tour in uh, 10 years ago so at the at the floral pavilion so it's just fabulous to be going back again and and it was a really special show 10 years ago there so i'm looking forward to doing it again <laughs> Can you believe it that I went to that little theatre in yeah. Liverpool when you just put it together and I know, the excitement yeah. ever, the excitement. Who'd have thought 10 years later you'd still be doing it? So, I know. And, and not only that, but, you know, that it had been around the world, you know, it's, it's, it, was, it was a project that I wanted to take on. I'd just just had my second child and I wanted something that w- that was going to, you know, excite me um, and was a real challenge. And so for it to be still here 10 years on, it's, it's yeah, it's great. When did you discover, I mean, we all used to say you looked like Liza Minnelli. Was it always yeah. in the back of your mind about putting this together? Because what I always say about you is uh, you're incredibly talented in your own right. Forget Liza, you are a talent uh, that I love working with. You have the most magnificent voice. But you're not uh, a tribute act in any shape or form. It no. is a piece of theatre. It is yeah. totally different. So when, when did the idea, when did you say, was there one day you went, I'm going to do this? Yeah, well, I've always been a Judy Garland fan, probably more than Eliza Minnelli fan in many ways. You know, I, 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 she was one of the reasons when I was growing up that I wanted to be in theatre and, and, you know, all those old movies. Just yeah. um, So so that, that was, I've always had that link with Judy Garland. But when I was doing West End shows, 
Um, I played Rizzo in Greece. Yep. And all the time, I had a Americans stopping at stage door saying, you, you know, you're so like Liza. Cause, and it wasn't, it wasn't ever intentional. It was just that kind of character, mm-hmm. you know, brought out those elements in me. So I started thinking about it. And then I did, I did the show Fame over in Sweden. And um, whilst I was out there, I got asked to come and play Liza Minnelli in Monte Carlo um, in a special concert. Um, and so, and it was like, really? Uh, you know, I'd never tried to be Liza Minnelli. I'd sung maybe this time and I'd sung. Uh, so that was the first time I kind of consciously became Liza, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so that was in, that was in um, a, a fabulous concert out in Monte Carlo. And that, then I suddenly thought, right, well, I've always wanted to do something regarding Judy Garland. Um, and I find the relationship, the mother-daughter relationship, absolutely fascinating. Um, so my, I'll, be, I'll be honest. My first thought was, "Oh, could I do this all by myself?" <laughs> and yeah, I could do yeah, Judy yeah. in the yeah, first yeah. half and Liza in the second half. And then I realised how ridiculous that was. <laughs> so um, made the decision that I'd bring someone else on board, and and it, we would venture deep into that that mother daughter relationship. And without mentioning any names, you've had a few Judies, haven't you? We have, and a yes. Cu- a couple have been very like Judy. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. Well, I'll leave it but at this, that. No, I'll leave it at that. But yeah, I thought that was this, funny. This Judy Helen is yeah, um, yeah. is she's, uh, she's fabulous. Um, you, some of a lot of your listeners were, might know her from Brookside. Actually, she was in Brookside, I think, for about a year. Mm-hmm. Playing Ray, I think it was Ray Quinn's mum. Yep. So um, you know, they would recognise her. She was also in Downton Abbey. But I owe you a big, big uh, thank you for helping me find her because you saw her, didn't you, in Judy, Judy, Judy in London? We did indeed. We just sat there in uh, mesmerised, absolutely mesmerised. Yeah. So you rang me and went, "Oh my God, I found you a Judy," and and that was that was it really. I I brought her up, auditioned her, and and yeah. it's been it's been a great partnership ever since. Emma, I don't think I've ever asked you this, and we've interviewed each other a couple of times, but have you yeah. ever met Judy or Liza? No, I haven't. Neither? I haven't, no. Um, I, yeah, I've been, obviously, I went, to, I went to, I've been to see, I haven't seen Judy Garland live, but I've seen Liza live. I'm slightly nervous if, if that meeting ever happened, um, because I'd be conscious that I'd, I'd be so upset if she didn't like the show, but mm-hmm. I'm sure she would like the show. Because uh, it's a celebration of their lives, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not. I think there was quite a controversy. She didn't like the the version, well, the film, the Renée Zellweger film, yeah. or or and that obviously came from the um, was it Over the Rainbow? Is that what you call the, yeah. um, the the show that was in in the West End with Tracy Bennett? Liza didn't like that at all because I think she felt it was derogatory towards. Judy, whereas I don't think, you know, our show, yes, of course, we, we know the story and we tell the tales and it's all honest, but it, it's a celebration of these two amazing talents, you know, and, and, and the struggles that they've been through. It's not about tearing anyone down, you know, um, so that's, I think... I think and they, they were, Emma, they yeah. were complicated anyway, they were complex people. Oh, yeah. I have got, I've got the Judy Garland album in yeah. my collection of the last one she did at the mm. Talk of the Town, which was mm. absolutely panned and she was drunk on stage. I mm. bought it, but I've never, ever, ever played listen. it. Yeah. I can't. But I wanted it, I, yeah. but, I, I, but I could never listen to it. I, when I think of Judy Garland, think of her at Carnegie Hall. She got a 20-minute yeah. standing ovation before she started yeah. the song. And that's how we should remember, yes. isn't it? Yeah. You know, of course, we you know we need to tell tell the tale of of what what the drugs did and the alcohol did, but that's not people. Yeah. You know? So. So Emma, yeah. you're coming to New Brighton. What what's the date you're coming to New Brighton? Yeah, June the fourth. June the fourth. We've 4th. got a matinee and an evening show, so that's exciting. Mm, um, it's dedic- it, yeah, it really is dead we- exciting. We go straight from there to London. We've got two, and we've sold out in London. Two shows the following day in London. So yeah, but don't you? You say they're sold out. Don't you think people are desperate? No, but don't you think people are desperate to go back to the theatre? Yeah, I do. I do, and I, you know, I think as well. What's quite good is people who want to go back to the theatre but still want that bit of safety before it all goes back to normal. This period of time is the best place to get best time to go. 
because it'll be socially distanced. It will be, you know, there's a lot of care being taken. So I actually think, because um, I obviously my show attracts the older generation. So I think it, it will be, it, it's a really good way of easing yourself back into it mm. because it will be socially distanced and safe. So That'd be great. That'd yeah. be great. Um, with the lockdown, um, mm-hmm. one of the strongest drugs in the world is an audience and nobody who has ever done it can ever explain uh, what they're missing with the withdrawal of symptoms from so many artists i know have been horrendous and some Mm. people have made themselves really ill yeah i know well it's you need it it's it's not it's it's a connection theater's a connection it's not about what's just what's going on on stage it's about what's going on between between the actors and the audience, you know, and if you don't have that, you're not getting that experience, you know, either the actors or, or the audience. You need it's the, it's, the, it's the magic that goes on in the middle, you know, which is yeah. why it's always different every day. You know, you can't get bored and complacent because each audience is different. And sometimes, you know, we've played big audiences and sometimes we've had small audiences and, and sometimes it's small audiences that are more moving. You know? Oh, yes. And you, and you Smaller theatres are, are gorgeous, you know. Yeah. I, I hated seeing Bassie at, um, at Arenas. I loved yeah. her at the Empire. Uh, you yeah. know, to me, it was that intimacy that yeah. is magical. And and you have an intimate... You work intimately with an audience. We, I, I took this lovely lady... I was thrilled to, to take her over to Singapore, the thing we called the best of british which was raising money for the gurkhas and uh, riding for the disabled and we went yeah. over as a, as a team and i saw that the way you captivated that audience it is magical what you do as liza and what you do as a performer yeah well it is that cabaret kind of feel you know and and actually liza is very very good at that she's actually better at that than judy judy's great at the big talk yeah, yeah yeah but liza's brilliant at the at, at the connection at the you know at the storytelling um so i mean true liza fans know that but as a general sort of just an audience member who doesn't really know liza and, and you get a feel for that within our show as well um it's She's a brilliant storyteller. So. Have Have you coped through lockdown? Do you know how have I coped? I was trying to think of this today because we did actually have rehearsals today, or I met with the tech team. So, and we were talking about it, and I said to them, "You know, were you scared? You know, when it first happened?" And they're like, "Yeah." And I thought, "Well, so was I, but you." You had to hold it in, didn't you? Do you know, it was like an, a general anxiety. <laughs> you couldn't actually let it go. Otherwise, I think we'd have all fallen apart. Um, so how have I coped? There's bits of it that have been very difficult, and there's bits of it that I've actually really enjoyed. For instance, spending more time with my kids. Yeah. I know this homeschooling has been a nightmare, but, yeah. um, but actually, I feel like you're never going to have the opportunity again to spend that much time with your family, you know. And obviously, I re- appreciate that other people aren't in that position. And I don't know how people who live alone have coped. I, I honestly mm. don't. You know, I've been very, very lucky. Mm. Interesting you say about that, Emma. Um, uh, Claire Sweeney, as you know, we're all mates. And Claire has loved getting to know her son and watching her son yeah. grow up. Because you, <coughs> excuse me, you as an entertainer have to go to the theatre and leave your child with a carer, of course, uh, 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 whatever. But... Claire has found that amazing and she's really bonded with her son and she feels yeah. there's going to be a problem going back to work. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, it's it's baby steps. But, I, I mean, I'm one of the reasons why I did Judy and Lies and why I wrote it and produced it is so that I would have a little bit of control over that. Yes, yeah. So that I could control when I'm working and when I'm not. So I don't need to be doing eight shows a week for 12 months, which I just couldn't do anymore, you know, not not with the family. What's your thoughts about the ships? Because when the ships come back, your show, Judy and Liza the Musical, is tailored completely for those big cruise ships. Yeah, well, we have actually been doing, because um, we've been performing on Pianos Britannia for the past two years. So, um, but we actually do it in their Limelight Club, which I know Claire does as well, which That's is right, more yeah. 
smaller it's a smaller exclusive venue it's a great gig i absolutely love it you know you fly you fly to barbados do four shows and fly home <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's great as a i mean you're talking about someone who has a fear of flying and a fear of traveling and it's really helped me with that you know because suddenly it was once a month or twice a month i was flying to the caribbean and i and i'm missing it um so and i have been in talks with them about about taking it out again so it's just a question of i mean they're, they're starting it around uh the, the piano britannia is just going around the british isles for this summer clever idea have, that by the way clever idea to break to people back in yeah. yeah but it's a clever so, idea that to bring yeah. them back into cruising again because we're yeah. going around in the country that we know and love yeah uh, yeah, so it feels like a lot of the risk is taken away. So, again, it's going to be baby steps, yeah. isn't it? Amazing. You know, but I'm looking forward to getting back out there. <laughs> Emma Dears, you're at New Brighton uh, on the 4th of June, a matinee yeah. and an evening show. They can get onto the website, get the tickets book now. It's called Judy and Liza the Musical. It really is, ladies and gentlemen, I've watched it developed. I saw it from an embryo, and it now is just something that could run in the West End. Emma, lovely to talk to you as ever. And you, Pete. Thanks for having me on. Mark Palios, the owner of Tramir, tells us about the Super League and Tramir Rovers. Good evening, Pete. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for joining me. I thought the picture I put up of you on Twitter was the best one. I hope Nicola, your wife, realised what a handsome man you are. It was a very nice picture. There. You had a great suntan there. Great suntan. I think it's a very old picture, Pete. Yeah. You have, I believe, the best uh, pitch in this country, <laughs> Tramir. Yeah, I mean, we we had our pitch changed in the middle of COVID, which was quite an interesting thing to do because we basically um, agreed with the contractor to pull the pitch up on the twenty first of um, of March when they were saying we we're going to be back playing on the on the twenty uh, ninth of April. Uh, well, a pitch to be rebuilt is about um, five weeks build and seven weeks growing. Uh, we managed to cram it in, but um, no. So, we, and, and the guys who did it are the same guys who did like Stade de France, uh, Old Trafford, uh, which is one of the best, well, if not the best pitch in the world. Uh, they fixed Wembley as well. Um, so, it, it, yeah, we, we, the fans were complaining that this grass coverage wasn't great, uh, and that's just a function of light. And uh, you know, the club has a certain budget and actually can't afford to uh, put uh, the electricity on for right through the winter. So, you know, the actual grass coverage was a little bit less than they would have liked. Mm. But uh, we're looking into it, and uh, we make small steps to try and improve things. And uh, But the pitch itself is fantastic. Whilst, whilst games are called off this season, uh, we didn't have a single... We didn't have a, uh, any 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 um, even doubtful pitch uh, in terms of um, the, uh, the bad winter we had. Mm. Mark, you're a very um, shrewd, clever businessman, as, as your wife is as well. Why would somebody like you buy a football club? Um, well, it's very kind of you to, to describe it as that. I think people would say if you buy a football club, you're not. Um, why did we? Well, I mean, I actually believe that if there's any lower league club that can exist and can be self-sustainable, then, then it's tramway because of all the natural advantages it's got. You know, it sits on Merseyside, which is a hotbed of football. Uh, it, it is, in fact, um, a, a quite a well-supported club, a small league club. And, you know, there were lots of things that could be done to, to make it better. And, you know, from my perspective, uh, yeah, it gave me quite a lot. And there was a chance to actually come back and, and deal with it, especially in the state it was in, because it was, it was heading uh, in completely the wrong direction. Now... You and your lovely lady, and you've got a great, great team around you. You really did embrace um, the lockdown. When did you realise that we had a major problem, that we weren't going to open? Uh, I, I don't think we were uh, more pressing than anybody else. I mean, I think the with the first lockdown that occurred in the March, uh, in that week... Uh, I did what I, I normally do. I mean, my job actually is in accounting. Was in the second half, the first half of my career, I was basically a, a, an insolvency practitioner, where you deal with companies that are in difficulty all the time. The second half, I was um, developing a turnaround business, which is about fixing companies. So, the very first week, I mean, we'd actually done. I know it sounds boring, but we'd done 
forecasts on on three different scenarios, mm-hmm. having no fans at all, etc. So we'd planned for it, and as it evolved, um, you know, we were just ready to do what we needed to do next, and I think that was the key thing. But di- the difference was, um, I think a lot of clubs who had financial problems because of COVID, uh, we, we didn't because, um, again, we... we I mean, how can I put it? A lot of them wanted to hibernate and survive, so stop playing and survive. Uh, my view is that we should actually actively manage it and thrive. Uh, and within that, there was the stuff that you talk about. Um, you know, I said that football goes away, but the football club doesn't go away. So, you know, we started to help the community in a way that. Um, yeah, I'm pretty proud of it. Uh, a lot of people um, got involved in that. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't just me. It wasn't even just the club. Lots of fans uh, helped out. The trust helped out, um, and, and it was just fantastic. The club, you've, you're doing really well. You, you must be happy the way it's gone. Um, I've sat behind you a couple of times in the game. <laughs> I can see the back of your head. I can. <laughs> How you live through it, and Nicola as well. How how do you feel about the club? What's happening? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of the fans are, are quite sort of anti uh, anti the manager. Um, but if you'd said to them at the start of the season, at this stage of the season, with two games to go, you know, you are you still have a, a chance, a scintilla of a chance of automatic promotion. And, you know, you're probably going to be in the playoffs. Um, you got to the third round of the cup, and you've also got to a cup final in terms of the uh, EFL Cup. So um, that was our fourth time at Wembley within the last just under four years. And, and if we, you know, if we succeed and get in the playoffs, and then uh, get to the playoff final, I'll be our fifth time to Wembley. And there may be fans back, which should be a good thing. So, you know, I think in terms of where we are. Um, people are disappointed because recently the results haven't been great. We've been getting draws instead of wins. Um, and as a consequence, you know, we've slipped into more of a playoff position than an automatic promotion. It's like, you know, if you, if you start the game and, and, you, and you go one and up and then somebody scores at the end, uh, you feel cheated. Then if you if you actually were one nil down and you score at the end, you feel, you feel like it's a win. Um, so it, it's one of those things because, you know, about 10 games ago we were in the automatic spots, then people are, you know, are pretty disappointed because we've slipped into the playoffs. But, you know, it's, um, you, you, there is no right to go up. Uh, you have to earn it. And uh, that's what we'll try and do. We've got two games left. What's interesting around Tramir as well, um, you're embracing, well, I don't know if you are embracing or it's just happening, street art about Tramir is happening all around you. Yeah, and that's that's um, purely down to the trust, um, and and I think you know we 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 have an official supporters club, and we have a, a supporters trust, and you've seen in the last week everybody has been saying, oh, you know, fans need to be more involved. Uh, one of the good things that happened uh, to us when we first came back to the club was we were able to get uh, the trust to get involved in the first year, and then the. Um, and then, then we formed an official supporters club. Important not to make it a creature of the club, but actually uh, they give us insight. So, for example, they will do things like um, they will make the decisions regarding season tickets. I and mean, then I'll just say, yes, fine, because, you know, they know it. I don't. So um, I'm happy for that to happen. So um, they um, they have a fan zone, which is, oh, I think it's great because it was the old director's car park that was turned into a fan zone. So it was quite, uh, you know, quite uh, symbolic. Uh, and you know they, that allows them to earn some cash and helps them. So they've been about you know um, putting the brand the tram they're about, and that's where all the street arts come from. It looks good too, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean it's um, it, it's it, it's just a it's almost like claiming the uh, <laughs> the environment for us because um, we say we are Wirral's family club uh, because we are the only professional football club on the world, and <laughs> really. Um, you know, it's it's the one thing that I think that over the course, it's one of the things when I came here, I knew we could do. We could make that into uh, a real big part of pushing the brand of the club by actively working in the community in the way that we do. Um, and I think people recognise now that we are an integral part of the community. We're a real community asset without actually forming the made a community asset. And, you know, this is just part of it. Mm. Would you ever put concerts on again, Mark? Yeah, I think uh, we, we wouldn't personally promote them because I think you need to know 
what you know and we know what to do uh, well we, we we can make the venue available and i think the thing is that um the concert's approved because the people the people that we got certainly uh in the last concerts that we have that there is a marketplace for concerts you know in a fifteen thousand seater stadium uh, because um, I think that was one of the question marks people had: Is there a market? But I think, as you know, you know in show business, it, it's it's for other people to take the production risk rather than the football club to take that risk. Well, you might have seen on the news; you've heard about it all the time. They're saying the fans have won. They're saying that the clubs have quit. The Super League fan power has pushed this hated European Super League um, to the brink. I thought Gary Neville, um, and I'm not a great fan of his, but I think his video and his openness was amazing. I think it started the ball rolling. I think then Boris jumped in, which was quite clever. Uh, it seems that the system has fallen apart. These billionaires have not read what's gone on with the fans and or misread the whole situation. Mark Palios knows everything about football. What's your opinion, sir? Yeah, I think I've said it many times over the course of the last week. I mean, it was it was just it was ill fated. It was it was flawed from the start. It was poorly um, delivered. You know, it's a, there's a big stakeholder map in football, and there's bothered to do any of that. I can understand why, to some extent, because it's a bit difficult <laughs> to run something like this because it would have been leaked ages ago, and it would have been sort of stillborn anyway. Um, it was just a total miscalculation by them. Um, the the, uh, the sad thing is to see the chairman of the EFL um, say, let's get a project big picture out, because um, I've always said that that, again, is a naked land grab of a similar ilk to uh, the, the Super League. Um, but the, the one thing that people don't get, and uh, certainly when I was at the FA, it was pretty apparent, and that is that um, there is a global dimension to this that means that... Um, English organisations such as the FA, the EFL, the Premier League and the government can't solve it on its own. And so what you need is international cooperation over the wages thing because that is that is the one thing that um, that uh, really needs to be sorted out. And it is a global market. So when I was at the FA, I wouldn't put Man United and Liverpool under restrictions as regards how much they could pay agents because as soon as there's a foreign player, a foreign agent or a foreign club, the jurisdiction flipped to FIFA. It wasn't within my jurisdiction. Mm. Do you think, you know, do you think that um, the Spanish FA would have done that to Real Madrid? Probably not. But so why would I blame this club's at disadvantage? There had to be cooperation around the whole wages issue. And that's the one thing that worries me. Other than that, it was a great week for football. Interesting you say that, Mark. When when you were a, a, a lot younger, I was working in the nightclubs and we were I got involved with booking the acts at the Shakespeare and we all got together to try and keep the wages down because uh, some yep. of the big names were screwing us financially and we all tried to sort it. But then somebody was giving a backhander to one of the acts. Yeah. Yep. And it didn't work. Yeah. And that was 25 years ago. Yeah. I, I, and, and that's not dissimilar to where we are. But I just say that, you know, because, you know, it's very difficult to police the thing. But, the, you know, it would be fairly obvious, I think, if somebody was getting you know, a tremendous amount more than perhaps the market rate. Um, but the, the point I make is that, um, and I exaggerate to illustrate, but there's a guy, there's a boy in the favelas in Brazil, or there's a the boy in the, you know, in the streets around Birkenhead, docks, etc. And uh, you offer him a contract to play football. You offer him a thousand pounds a week, so it's fifty odd thousand pounds a year. Do you think he'd take it? The answer is that's the best he could get. Yeah, he certainly would. Uh, and he would he be a better player? No. Um, so, so there you have it. So, well, so why do we pay them half a million a week instead? Because we can't afford it, so why don't you do it? And and the the, the essence of this, and even the uh, big picture, and even um, uh, the uh, Super League, it's all based on let's feed the top line, and we'll, you know, and then trickle down economics. We'll give a bit more to you down beneath us. But you're not actually addressing the real problem, which is what goes on between the top line and the bottom line, and that is the wages bill. It's unregulated. It can be regulated far, far better than it is. Um, and if you don't, if you don't, if you don't attack that as aspect, you'll come up with a solution after all of this, which will be better than, than it is today. But it'll be suboptimal. It won't be the best you can get. 
You see, I remember years ago working with Charlie Williams, the comedian, the black comic. Yeah. He was yeah. a he yeah. was a footballer, great footballer, he was a football, yeah. and yeah. he was on ridiculously stupid money. It was nothing. Have you seen? And you played football. You've been in the mm. game so much. I, I, do you scratch your head at the abuse and the amount of money that's paid out? Well, I, I saw a statistic the other day. I mean, if if you bought a loaf of bread in um, in 1992 when, when the Premier League was formed, I think it cost you about 52p. If you bought it today, it would cost you uh, about 108p, 104p. <laughs> it's about, you know, it basically doubled in price. Um, but if you applied the inflation that was applied to wages, I think the price of the loaf of bread would be something like £16.80. Wow. And that says it all. You know, so yeah. it's completely outstripped um, uh, uh, inflation in that regard. And, you know, what happened was in, in the 80s, when the game was on, on its, at its nadir, um, you know, the FA changed things and allowed people to take money out of clubs for the first time. They did another thing as well, which was to um, not share gate income. So the big boys um, would keep all their big gates rather than share it with the teams that just played them. And that started to get this discrepancy in football. And ever since then, it's, it's built and built and built and built. And what you finally um, saw this last week was clubs actually got to the point where they believed they were bigger than the game itself. That's interesting. That statement, uh, it, it, that sums it up. If it had gone ahead, putting your other head on, and it would have happened, and the fans are the way they are, what do you think would have happened? Well, you know, there's one school of thought was that you know fans have become to accept it. Um, if I think the important thing was the response of the Premier League, because if the Premier League said to Everton, uh, sorry, said to Liverpool, you can't be in the Premier League. Imagine what do that would do because Liverpool fans. And Everton fans and Tramia fans, they go into work on a Monday morning and they've got the bragging rights, or they haven't got the bragging rights, but they've got a debate, you know, because Liverpool have played in the same league as, as, as Everton. But if Liverpool were not playing in that league, it, it really makes it quite, um, it sanitizes that, that sort of element of support in Liverpool and Everton to some extent. So I think, you know, it'd be interesting to see whether or not the fans went with it, or you'd have offshoots, uh, or whether people came to, you know, what, what we call real football, uh, not plastic football at all. Uh, and, you know, some of those smaller clubs would have benefited from it. I don't know. You see splinter groups coming away from you know, FC United and stuff like that, yeah. from Man United, etc. So it wasn't beyond the wit of man to see that type of thing happening. Um, but I, I think the... the um, the, ultimately, what would have happened, you would have seen the pyramid fall, to, fall down because there is a fault line. And, and, and whether it was meant or it's an unintended consequence, the way in which they share out the monies today um, with, with um, parachute payments um, was either designed to create a second division of the Premier League or it's just an accident. Of it. But that's effectively what they've been doing. And the fault line is right in the middle of League One. So I think this would have eventually ended up with a, you know, splitting the pyramid wow. and stopping and stopping promotion yeah. and relegation right the way through the levels we've got now. Mark, to finish off, we've got hopefully a new Everton stadium. We've had Everton and uh, Liverpool built this unbelievable to see that being fitted yeah. onto the stadium. I'll never forget. What's happening with Tramir? In an ideal world, would you like to move? I've said it uh, a number of times, about two years ago, because I've done the figures, the maths, uh, for my sins, I'm an accountant, but, um, <laughs> and, 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 and I, I always say, absent structural change, which we may have coming, um, if we wanted to be a self-sustainable championship club, you've probably got to be uh, in, in a new stadium, and with other com you've got to have commercial income that is not football-related. Doesn't, it doesn't matter what happens on the pitch, the commercial income will be generated. And potentially a new stadium could, could, could uh, do that for us. We're looking at that, plus a few other projects. So, you know, the, for us, um, if we did have a new stadium, it, it would only be a 15,000-seater stadium um, to start with. But it's something that I believe that, that would work. If not, you know, if I, even if I sort of bust a gut and, and, and improve the, the position, which we can do further from where we are, um, that would never get us to it. And the reason I say that is uh, wages bills, 
if we went, if you take the 17-18 wages bill for a championship club, the bottom figure was 10 million quid. To be self-sustainable, say you've got to be top of the bottom third of that league, that means you have a total of about 18 million quid. If we had full gates at, Trump, at Prenton Park, I might be able to get that figure to 11 million quid for us with, with for what we get for going up. So I'm still short of the 7, 8 million quid to get us anywhere near being safe. Otherwise, we'd go up, give it a year or two like Burton, then you come back down again and, and so forth. So, you know, you've really got to look at a game changer. Otherwise, if we stay at Prenton Park, we'll be a good League One club. Uh, is what the potential is for the club. How long do you reckon you're going to have it? In terms of... Just, are you still enjoying it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I, I've i done the job I came to do, which is to turn the thing around, because uh, we've gone through um, COVID, we've had a pitch collapse, we had um, you know, three years in the National League, um, which lost three and a half million, we had uh, the manager leave us, uh, we were, as I say, demoted all at the same time. And we've gone through all of that, and we'll come out of it stronger than when we went into it. We're still doing all the projects that we wanted to do. We've just started a new 3D pitch, the training ground. Uh, we started the uh, three-quarters of a million refurbishment of the rec centre, which, you know, gets the, um, which is the heartland for our delivery on community. Um, you know, we, we've got a new pitch in place. So, you know, there are lots of things going on in the club that make it stronger and stronger. Um, but the question is, if somebody can come along who can take it further and faster than I can, then, you know, then we'll step aside. I mean, it's as simple as that. Uh, at this point in time, uh, I need, there are things I still need to do, which I think uh, will improve the, the, uh, the club. Uh, and so, yeah, um, look, I... I I, quite, I shouldn't say it, but, you know, when you have a crisis, it's actually what I used to do for years until that so I've just come through COVID and it was, it was, you know, it was, it was just part of the job again. <laughs> have, you ha have, you, have you had both jabs or just one? Uh, I have had both jabs now, yes. So Good. I'm of that age where I can... <laughs> you can have both jabs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. But, you know, we, we, we were blessed in terms of we weren't... Um, we're only really close friends or family that were damaged by, by the pandemic. Because that's the one thing that puts everything into perspective, you know, the demotion, et cetera, that we had. Everybody was up in arms about that. I was annoyed about it. But the reality was we, 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 we've gone through the pandemic and, um, and uh, you know, we've been blessed by the fact that nobody's been, been really yeah. sort of damaged close to us. Mark Pallius, thank you for all you do from Tranmere and the Wirral, you and your wife and your loyal fans. Thanks for that. Thanks, Pete. I really hope you enjoyed that. And if you want more, it doesn't cost anything. Subscribe. Please, let's stay together. I miss seeing you and talking to you. Liverpool Live.